This is Wednesday's Women, hosted by Caitlin and Taylor. We invite you to join us in a candid conversation about the roles of women in political organizing and beyond as we celebrate the centennial celebration of the 19th Amendment. We hope that you find this ed episode educational, entertaining, and the women we discuss inspiring. If you like what you hear, subscribe and share. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Wednesday's Women. As you can see, it is not a typical episode because we have a boy. That's Tree. Tree, would you mind doing a little bit of an introduction about yourself since we are the only ones that know you right now? Sure. As Caitlin said, I am a boy. Um, <laughs> my name is Tree Leighton Zuzio. I am a recent graduate of Clarion University. I was a major businessman in political science, and I am a current master's degree candidate at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, major in social policy. Uh, I don't know what else you want to know about me, but that just about sums it up. I'm not all that interesting. <laughs> he was the trustee prior to me at Clarion. Um, that we all met each other through Student Senate. Um, so that's why we figured he was one of the best candidates to come on and to be our first guest since he's one a political science major, uh, very active in helping us with our pro-feminist agenda, so we figured we would give him the opportunity to talk to us about his favorite woman in politics. And I appreciate that. You know, not often that people let me talk, and I very much enjoy talking, so. <laughs> you know. So, I guess we're just going to jump right into it. No reason to beat around the bush. So, today we're talking about Shirley Chisholm, who was born Shirley Anita St. Hill on November 30th, 1924, in New York City. So I did a little bit of deep dive research about her early life because I found it interesting because I just like to see where people stem from. Um, her parents were Caribbean immigrants that worked in labor positions. Her mom was a seamstress. Her dad did labor. He was some kind of construction is what he did. Um, and they had four children together. And after having their fourth child, her parents fell on some financial hardships and her mom had to take on extra work to be able to sustain themselves. So they actually ended up sending her and two of her sisters to live with their grandmother in Barbados. And this was a very influential experience for her. She did say, this is a quote, Granny gave me strength, dignity, and love. I learned from an early age that I was somebody. I didn't need to be, need the Black Revolution to tell me that. So she learned a lot about herself and how to have confidence from living in Barbados. Um, it was also a very influential time because that was when she received um, the first step of her schooling, which is something that was very uncommon or she didn't, she received a very good education compared to a lot of people at that time. Um, it was a one room schoolhouse and not only did the education influence her, but she has a very recognizable West, Indian accent that she got because she lived in Barbados for such a period of time. Um, and she actually quoted that years later, I would know what an important gift my parents had given to me, seeing to it that I had my early education in a strict traditional British style school of Barbados. If I, if I speak and write easily now, that early education is the main reason. So obviously that was a very influential time of her life being sent there and having that. And even though she was born in the U.S. regardless, she says that she does, or she did consider herself a Barbadian American. So she was very um, t 
tied to that part of her life and part of her lineage. Um, after she went from there, she went to get her Bachelor of Arts at Brooklyn College in 1946, and she won many prizes while there for her debating skills. She was a part of a sorority, and she also became a part of the Harriet Tubman Society. And through those different organizations, she started to learn about um, political organizing and activism, that she really enjoyed it. Um, and it wasn't really uncommon because she was also surrounded by politics as her father was an avid supporter of Marcus Garvey and a dedicated supporter of the rights of the trade union members. Um, and she was also no stranger to seeing her community advocate for their rights as she was witnessed in, or as she witnessed in Barbados, the workers and anti-colonial independence movements. So after her early life, she started her career and initially she worked as a nursery school teacher. Then she got her master's degree in Columbia University for early childhood education in 1951. Nine years later, she was a consultant to the New York City Division of Daycare. So that was like her first step in starting to ascend the ropes and learning more about like overseeing things instead of being like just a teacher. Um, she was very aware of racial and gender inequality even then, so she joined local chapters of the League of Women Voters, the National Association of Advancement for Colored People, Urban League, as well as the Democratic Party Club in Bedford, so Stuyvesant, Stuyvesant, I think I'm saying that right, Brooklyn. In 1964, she ran for and became the second African-American in the New York State Legislature. After court-ordered uh, redistricting created a new heavily Democratic district in her neighborhood. In 1968, she sought and won a seat in Congress, which is so important to her story. And after she did end up leaving Congress, she made a home for herself in suburban Williamsville, New York, and resumed her career in education since that's where her cart kind of laid. Being named to the Purington Chair of the All Women's Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts, we're, I'm just every week just trying to speak <laughs> names and I'm always messing them up and I feel terrible about it. But you know what? I'm just going to... It is Mount Holy. Yay! Good work. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. There she was no, she wasn't a part of any particular department, but she would be able to teach classes in a variety of areas, which I think just kind of speaks to like her influence and how much she knew and how much everyone just supported her and what she did. She was a visiting scholar at Spelman College. And then during the 80s, she continued to give speeches at colleges by her own count visiting over 150 campuses since becoming nationally known, which is crazy to think that she was traveling that much. Like I couldn't imagine traveling that much. She told students to avoid polarization and intolerance. And to quote her, if you don't accept others who are different, it means nothing that you've learned calculus, which I think is a very um, real way of looking at school and looking at the importance of higher education. It's so much more than looking at learning your degree. It's more about looking at, you know, how you live in a society and how you work amongst a group and learning about people's differences and how you can apply those differences into whatever line of work you're planning on going into. Um, she traveled to visit different minority groups and urged them to become a strong force at the local level. Um, and in 1990, she, along with 15 other women and men that were black, formed the African American Women for Reproductive Freedom, which is just really nice to see that she was still advocating all the way into the 90s for women just like herself. Um, she ended up retiring one year later to Florida, which is the dream. 
And in 93, President Bill Clinton nominated her to be the United States ambassador to Jamaica, but she could not serve due to poor health and the nomination was withdrawn, which is a shame. In the same year, she was inducted to the National Women's Hall of Fame, which is really nice to see that she's still being honored and she has gotten several honors since then. And she died in January 1st, 2005 in Florida. And I just wanna mention during uh, Obama's presidency, she did receive the Medal of Freedom. First sort of step into politics was her state legislator role. She was, as Caitlin said, elected in 1965. Um, she did this by specifically appealing to female voters. And she used her role as the Brooklyn branch president of Key Women of America to sort of speak to her organizational skills and her ability to lead. Um, she fought and successfully, she fought to and successfully expanded unemployment benefits to domestic workers. Um, so domestic workers are sort of seen as, you know, housekeepers, um, cooks, garden workers, people you would sort of hire within your home. Um, and even today, 95% of domestic workers are people of color and are highly likely to be female. Um, so before, really before the 60s, there weren't a lot of protections for them as far as unemployment or social security. Um, so she did fight to expand those. The um, man who previously held the position accepted a judicial appointment, and this is when she really stepped in. Chisholm, Chisholm faced resistance based on her sex, with the UDC being hesitant to support a female candidate. So it sort of was unheard of for a woman to hold a high office. Up to this point, they were typically male. Um, so she really broke a couple barriers with this run. Chisholm served as state, le state legislator until 1968. Her successes within the legislature included getting unemployment benefits and sponsoring the introduction of SEEK program. SEEK stands for Search for Education, Elevation, and Knowledge. And knowledge. This program was extended to the state, which provided disadvantaged students the chance to enter college while receiving intensive remedial education. So she talks a lot about how influential her time in Barbados was and the education she received down there. And you can really see it play through in her policies that she voted for and fought for while in the state legislature. And I think it's really important that like for her to fight for unemployment benefits for domestic workers. Part of me wonders if that really does play into the fact that she watched her parents struggle and probably, I always think about where they stem from, their ideas, their beliefs, and I wonder it, how much of that had an impact on her, coming from not only a place where her parents were struggling, but also in Barbados where people were struggling. Looking at that same fact, um, at that point in time in the neighborhood she represented, it was it was a working class neighborhood, and when that applied to most African American people in our country at that point in time, that meant domestic work or some sort of labor position. Um, that's probably where a lot of that also came from, from the constituencies she worked with, from her friends and neighbors that she interacted with on a daily basis. That was just that that time period that they lived in. Yeah, very good point. Then. As we've already said, she was, she won and recently redrawn congressional seat in Brooklyn in 1968 with the slogan, unbought and unbossed, which I want a t-shirt that says that. 
And she was the first ever African-American Congresswoman and was the only woman in 1969 congressional freshman class, which is crazy. Um, however, as we will talk about, that is not what she always wants to be remembered for because with her um, appointment to Congress, she also felt that it was very late in the game. Like this should have been something that occurred earlier. Um, she was an advocate for the poor and working class, and she employed a method of direct engagement, a sound truck that she rolled up to Brooklyn Housing Projects bellowing, ladies and gentlemen, this is fighting Shirley Kism coming through, which I think is really neat, and I wish there was a video of it. There very well might be that I have not seen, so that is something I want to see. Um, upon entering the House, she was assigned to the House Agricultural Committee, despite representing an entirely urban district. This may have been a possible tactic to undermine her ability to represent constituency very well. Um, she made the best of a bad situation, despite that, working with Republican Bob Dole to expand food stamps throughout the use of surplus food. She was eventually placed on the Veterans Affairs Committee and finally onto the Educational and Labor, Labor Committee by Hale Boggs after she supported him for majority leader. And she was one of the founding members of the Congressional Black Caucus in 1971, an organization made up of African-American representatives designed to bring them together and to support the needs of communities of color. Um, Nixon, who she actually lost the presidential uh, seat to she didn't lose it to him she didn't make it that far but he's the one who ended up winning when she ran um first refused to meet with the caucus but they staged a highly publicized boycott of his 1971 state of the union address which in turn successfully made him agree to meet with them so they kind of bullied him into meeting with him um which worked so like it's fine i gonna say it's not the only time state of the union has kind of been used to get a point across by someone other than the president. So um, I believe it was last year. Wow, 2020 is flying, but not fast enough at the same time. Um, the women, the congresswomen were white to the president's State of the Union address just to speak out for um, recognizing women in the political field. Yes. So it's not the only time like, this is fairly common for um, legislators and congresswomen and congresspeople in general to sort of broadcast something at the same time as the State of the Union because the State of the Union is such a popular event. I can also not believe that 2020, like, that was in 2020. That was in December, I'm pretty sure. It was 2019 that they wore the white for the first time, and then several of the congresswomen and um, senators also wore white in 2020, but it was first a thing in 2019. I remember watching that one. <laughs> yeah. um, so the same year, she was a founding member of the National Women's Political Caucus. So she was a busy lady. Like, she was not, like, stopping for anything. She founded this... Uh, caucus along with famous feminists such as Gloria Steinem, Bella Abzug, and Flo Kennedy. The organization holds conventions during which it votes to support policy positions aimed to better the lives of women, which is really important, and we know that was something that was very important to her throughout her life. Um, today, that organization aims to support female candidates on all levels of government. 
So really, it was a very influential thing creating that that still affects us today. Um, in 1977, she was elected to the secretary of the House Democratic Caucus. Um, she was the first person of color ever elected to a leadership position in Congress. So again, just continuing to break down that barrier of women of color not being represented. Um, she successfully expanded a minimum wage so that it applied to domestic workers, again, trying to advocate for those who she had personally seen be affected by these unequal this equity issue, I should say. Um, this action was originally blocked by representatives from the South, but she was able to enlist the help of George Wallace to help pressure them into supporting the initiative. She likes to really pressure people and I love it. I'm here for it. And she retired from Congress in 82 in order to take care of her husband who was incredibly sick. Just sad. So it's really important to note that this is the second wave of feminism um, as your first podcast, or I guess technically second after introductory, but the first real podcast stated the second wave of feminism was in this particular time period and it was defined particularly around the fight for uh, the Equal Rights Amendment and a number of other um, initiatives designed to bring women to the same level as men. Um, and she was heavily involved in that uh, through her actions in Congress and outside of Congress. She was, as Caitlin stated, a very, very busy person, <laughs> which is very important to note. She was everywhere. And in 1972, she decided to add to her extremely busy schedule and, of course, run for president. Uh, only a few, a handful of women had run for president prior to her at that point um, in 1872. Uh, Victoria Woodhull ran for president on a third-party ticket, and then another woman with last name Lockhood ran for president in the 1880s, also on a third party. The first woman to run for a major party ticket was Margaret Chase Smith in 1964. She ran on the for the Republican ticket, and Shirley Chisholm was the first woman of color and the first woman to run for the Democratic uh, presidential nomination, announcing her candidacy in 1972. Have you ever watched um, that video where she announces her presidency? Oh, it's a good video. She does it, and everyone's kind of stunned, and they're just kind of like, like there's this like, <laughs> like if you listen to the video, you guys should go on YouTube and listen to the video because like she announces it, and there's this like little bit of silence, and then there she's like, <laughs> like this very timid clapping. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. You know, no one was really expecting her to put her hat into the ring. It was a very competitive election year. The 1972 election was probably the third most competitive Democratic election in history. 1968 likely being the most competitive just because of that period of time and um, you know the power struggles between what after Bobby Kennedy was assassinated and the number of other Democratic candidates jockeying for power for the nomination in 68 made that very dramatic. And of course, the 2020 primary was also extremely dramatic with the largest field ever. But 1972 had a huge field. Hubert Humphrey was running, who had been the vice president and had had the nomination in 1968. We also had uh, George McGovern. We had George Wallace, the famous segregationist governor from Alabama, who had run third party candidacies and won a number of states on a third party ticket prior to that. And another of other senators, Congress people also running. Um, there is a video of uh, the news clip it's of Walter Cronkite announcing Shirley Chisholm's candidacy. It's uh, pretty interesting because he goes, another candidate threw their hat into the ring, or may I say a bonnet, um, as he, she was the first, she was the only woman candidate running at that point in time. Um, 
being the first woman of color, it was groundbreaking for her to run for president and the first person of color to seek a major party nomination. Um, when she announced, she announced it saying she understood that people were going to judge her both for her gender and for her race. And much like Kennedy did in, 19, in the 1960 election, he, she made an announcement assuring people that her race and her gender were not the drivers of her politics. It was her belief in the greater good. And she kind of brought that across in this uh, here. Uh, I am not the candidate of black America, although I am black and proud. I am not the candidate of the women's movement of this country, although I am a woman and equally proud of that. I am the candidate of the people. My presence before you symbolizes a new era in American political history. And that kind of highlights that she understood the barriers that she was breaking down, but also wanted to temper the fears that people had that of a female candidate and uh, a woman of color and a person of color running for president, which was a big deal for the 70s. And I think um, it's important to mention, this is coming only four years after the, after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. So obviously racial tensions were still very serious and very tense, for lack of a be better word. So I just think that's important to mention. Yeah, um, also Nixon was famous for his um, cold relations with communities of color and his hostility towards um, the civil rights movement and all the activities therein. Uh, that was a big point of contention at that point in time. And of course, also, she was running against candidates like George Wallace, who had staked their entire career on keeping Jim Crow and segregation intact. That is what he was running on at that point in time. Though their relationship is very interesting. We'll get into that a little bit later. Um, in June of 1972, she became the first woman and the first person of color to ever engage in a presidential debate. This was after being blocked from the only televised debate of that election. Um, she sued and they allowed her to take part in the next debate after she sued. Um, they were very against her candidacy as a Democratic Party as well at that point in time. Um, and this kind of, kind of where we get into the George Wallace relationship that they had. During the 1972 primary season, someone attempted to assassinate George Wallace. They shot him several times in the back and chest region, um, and eventually it actually paralyzed him. However, she was moved by this event that something so terrible could happen to someone despite their political differences, despite his racism. She didn't believe that anyone should be taken down because of their political beliefs, no matter how terrible they were. And she actually visited him in the hospital and was one of the only candidates to do so in the primary season. Um, and when we get into the... How, like, much of a bigger person she was. Yeah. Like, she was... Because I couldn't imagine, like, if something like that happened today amongst, like, our top two political candidates, I don't think that either would visit either i would highly doubt it <laughs> no um, i think that just goes to show how much of a bigger person she is that she's willing to see them as americans and not just as de democrats and republicans that she would visit him yeah she saw everyone as people and saw the value in all all lives she saw every how important everyone was and she really tried to get that apart across in everything that she did um and as caitlin had mentioned or yes you talked about congress right i think yeah. so I'm forgetful. <laughs> and she, and Caitlin had mentioned that George Wallace was the one to help her 
get segregationalists or Dixiecrats to vote with her on expanding unemployment benefits to um, domestic workers. It is because she visited him in the hospital that he was willing to work with her. They had become friends at that point. And near the end of George Wallace's life, he actually took back everything he had ever said about segregation and the importance of segregation. And he showed a great deal of remorse towards the end of his life to everything he had done while in power. And I feel as though part of that change started to occur when him and Shirley Chisholm became friends. Because, you know, that changes someone who has had that a view of a particular group of people for such a long time, then someone comes in to break that view. And she was one of the first people to come in and break that view for him, which was a good first step, shows the humanity in everyone. Um, during this particular point, her campaign, groundbreaking as it was, was extremely underfunded. Um, it was difficult for her to campaign. She was distracted by all the other work that she was doing. So she wanted to win Florida. That was her campaign's goal. The primary season looked a lot different back then. So Florida was super important. Um, and she wanted to win Florida. However, her congressional duties only allowed her to visit Florida twice. Um, but still, despite her difficulty, she was able to get 28 delegates throughout the primary process, which equaled out to be about 430,000 430, votes which being this particular point in time, her being the first female candidate on the Democratic ticket and her being the first candidate of color on the Democratic ticket or ever, it, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's you know, half, it didn't, half a million. It, yeah, it didn't win her the nomination, but it definitely got the ball rolling in the right direction. That started to change people's minds. Um, I just said many times, not everyone received the right to vote in 1920 and so her run is within 10 years of the last state allowing black women to vote she's still running in a similar fashion to everyone else but her primary demographic which everyone who runs has someone where you know okay i'm going to gear for this demographic her primary demographic had only had voting rights for less than 10 years which you still have to register and you have to, it, some places we're still using poll taxes. So there are things that you, your voters are going to have to overcome. So 40, 430,000 votes is incredibly impressive. It, it really was. That's a really good point. I didn't think about it that way. Yeah, and that kind of gets to the point of the need to um, gain political momentum and power. You know, after you have the right to vote, how do you make that vote count in that you have power? You know, if you just vote with the original power structures, that's not really going to change anything. And that's really what she wanted to break down, you know, unbossed, unbought and unbossed. She was not controlled by those traditional institutions of power that had kept people of color and women down for generations. She was trying to break free from that constraining aspect that didn't allow women and people of color and other minority groups to gain political power and gain the freedoms that they deserved as American citizens, as people. Um, and another point to that particular power structure in the night and during the convention itself, which took place in Miami in 1972, there were a number of delegates that defected to her campaign and voted for her rather than the candidate that they had been assigned to vote for. Um, in the end, Hubert Humphrey also made a push to stop um, 
George McGovern, who eventually won the nomination, from gaining that nomination. So he released a large number of his delegates to Shirley, as opposed to any of the other candidates. And in the end, she had about 152 delegates vote for her um, during the convention, which equaled out to about 10% of the vote. Once again, changing those power structures in favor of the issues that she ran on, ensuring that she even ran on um, a, a program somewhat equivalent to Medicaid for all. That's not a new program, though Bernie Sanders talks about it a lot. <laughs> it's nothing new. And she talked about that during her presidential run way back in 1972, before it was the popular position. Um, and, and during that run, there was a lot of hostility towards her campaign. She received numerous death, death threats, um, both because of her gender and because of her race, and at times because of both. And at first, the Secret Service had refused to protect her, so her husband acted as her bodyguard until the threat became so apparent and so real that the Secret Service felt obligated to protect her. They didn't come in until close to the convention itself. That a lot of the power structures were against her at that point in time. I mean, even like one of my kind of like favorite facts about her is at this time period in her life is that one of the people that tried to attack her at a 10-inch knife so like that's like one of the one of the uh attempts or like possible attacks that i think of when i think of that time after wallace had already been attacked is that it was a 10 inch knife that's nothing to snuff at yeah and threats of violence against politicians was extremely real at this point in time as caitlin mentioned martin luther king was only assassinated four years prior bobby kennedy was assassinated in 1968 during the Democratic primary, during the same period of time, four years later, that Shirley was receiving these threats. So these threats were extremely realistic. People were taking these types of actions. I mean, the 60s itself were not a great time for political assassinations. We saw Malcolm X also assassinated in 1965, I believe. Megar Evers assassinated, and another other um, political individuals were also assassinated during this period of time. So these threats were extremely real and it came from a hostility to the changing environment that people saw themselves in, in which they didn't see themselves in the new world that had people of color and women equal to the traditional white male hierarchy that had existed for generations at this particular point in time. But those walls were starting to come down and surely was, the, was a symbol of that destruction of those walls because she was both a woman and a person of color running for the highest position in the land, which frankly scared a lot of people. And but I think it it's for the better. Yeah, exactly. But I also think it's really important that like she didn't back down from that because I think a lot of people would have gotten like one assassination attempt and they would have said for my safety, I don't feel as though I can continue on. And that would be a respectable thing to do. Like if I had children and I was getting like trying to do something and I got death threats, that's something to really think about, you know, mm -hmm. if you're willing to continue. And she was willing to continue and to persevere despite those very real threats. So, you know, it's something really commendable that she did that because without it, you know, it would have maybe taken quite a lot longer for women and women of color to get into those higher positions. Yeah, and it's also the po important to point out that though, though her campaign was symbolic, she made it very clear that she was not running just to be a symbol. She was running to win. She was running to take that political power. Though her campaign was very symbolic, that is not all it was. 
It was a campaign to, designed to give people political power who had been disenfranchised for years and to ensure that the government was actually working for them rather than that traditional hierarchy that had existed for so long. The next thing we want to discuss is her legacy. So she left behind a lot more than just starring on this podcast. Um, so we've broken her legacy into two parts, her political legacy and her pop culture legacy. So her legacy in the field of politics um, is by no means short. So people credited Chisholm's presidential run as paving the way for the 2008 Battle of Firsts. And so the Battle of Firsts refers to the um, campaign of Barack Obama against Hillary Clinton, where whoever would have won would have been a first for America. It was either the first African-American president or the first female president. Um, so that was really seen as pushing past where Chisholm had left off. Kamala Harris announced her 2020 presidential bid with campaign materials that bore a striking resemblance to Chisholm's. We're not, we're not saying she copied Chisholm, we're just saying she found inspiration in Chisholm's political run. Um, so the typography and the colors were very similar. The Shirley Chisholm Project in Brooklyn Women's Activism it was formerly known as Shirley Chisholm Center for Research, um, is a part of the Brooklyn College where she attended to promote research projects and programs focused on women and preserving the legacy of Chisholm. Um, this project also houses an archive as part of the Chisholm Papers in the College Library Special Collections section, um, really to make, to help raise awareness to the amazing things Chisholm accomplished during her time. Um, Representative Yvette Clark, who holds the seat that was previously held by Ms. Chisholm, is working to get a statue of her placed in the United States Capitol. Did that happen yet? She might have. The article that this information came from was written at the end of 2019, and I didn't see an update on it, So, oh. but it's very possible it happened. There just wasn't an update provided. Interesting, okay. Uh, yeah. Similarly, Representative Hakeem Jeffries, who is another Brooklyn Democrat, had a portrait of her made to hang in the office of the House Democratic Caucus, which he currently heads, on Capitol Hill. So she is well represented in our Capitol buildings and in Brooklyn, where she hails from. Um, Representative Ayanna Presley, the Democrat of Massachusetts, was given Ms. Chisholm's office in the Longworth House office building um, it was given to her by her colleague Katie Hill, so when you're elected, you do a draw to see who gets what offices. Katie Hill received the office, but gave it to Ayanna Presley. Miss um, Presley said that she felt a soul tie to Shirley Chisholm, and, and I quote, the vibe of her office fills me with the courage to boldly lead, boldly legislate, and to never forget those who sent me here, end quote. Um, and Miss Presley was one of the many women who evoked Miss Chisholm during their 2018 congressional campaign. So at this time, many women were saying, you know, this road's been paved and we want to continue using it. We don't want to just let it sit here. 
Um, and there are many other places where she's well represented and well respected and spoken highly of. These are just some major political legacies she's left behind. Yeah, um, and then going into cultural legacies, um, one of the biggest instances is the most recent instances is the Mrs. America TV show, which was released in April of 2020. I've watched all of it. I think it's pretty good. Um, it focuses on the battle over the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment. However, it does have an episode entirely dedicated to Shirley Chisholm's um, presidential campaign, and it also features her throughout the series. Uh, she is played by Ozo Abduba. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but let's hope so. I think she's the lady who plays in Orange is the New Black. That's possible. I have no idea. <laughs> I haven't seen that show. Correct. It is. I'm right. She's oh. an awesome actor actress. She yeah, she was really, really good. Um, yeah, and that's a great show, and it gets into a lot of the congressional battles, um, the death threats that she faced on the campaign trail, um, the issues of being a female in Congress when there are only, I believe, 14 females in Congress in 1972. I could be wrong, um, but somewhere around there, not a lot. Um, yes, and it also, she also uh, was the subject of a documentary um, the Fighting Shirley Chisholm was produced by Viola Davis. Uh, it has interviews with Shirley Chisholm near the end of her life uh, in 2005. Uh, I haven't seen it in full, but I've seen clip of, clips of it, and it seems like a very good documentary. It costs money, and I'm very cheap, so I haven't watched it in its entirety yet. <laughs> um, Shirley Chisholm was also the author of two books, um, Unbought and Unbo Unbossed, and Unbought um, was the slogan for her campaign. It's also the title of one of her books. And the Good Fight, uh, which followed the twenty or the 1972 uh, campaign trail in her historic election. I almost said the 2020 election um, until it's on my mind. Um, and her slogan, Unbossed and Unbought, is currently engraved on the vault in which she was buried. Um, it was her fighting slogan. It was her battle cry. And it's appropriate that she has that over her grave so that people will always know what she stood for. Um, and some exciting news, uh, in January of 2019, Shirley Chisholm State Park, the largest state park in New York, New York City, opened in Brooklyn. It's currently still under construction. Those sections of it are open. It's due to be completed in 2021. Um, yes, and the, there's also a congresswoman, as uh, Taylor had mentioned, looking to have a historical figure, have a public monument built in Brooklyn for Shirley Chisholm, which is going to be pretty cool. I'm excited. I'm going to visit that state park. I don't know about anyone else, but she is my favorite politician. I have two favorite politicians. Neither of them won the presidency, but they both tried to get there. Um, Shirley Chisholm probably came closer than Bobby Kennedy as she survived the primary season, um, but yes. Uh, dark humor. Good time. <laughs> so when we started immediately knew that we wanted Tree to come on with us for at least one episode, so we immediately text him. And I think we actually text him, who's your favorite suffragette? And he sent back Shirley Chisholm, and we're like, okay. And then he's like, wait. No, what I said was, I said, can I do Shirley Chisholm as the person we're going to talk about? I understood she wasn't a suffragette, but I wanted to talk about Shirley Chisholm all the same. We're in the League of Women Voters, so like we can just we can assume that if she was alive during 
the passing of the 19th Amendment, she'd be a suffragette. Yeah, she was born in 1920, what, 24, so that's pretty close, only four years off. <laughs> she gets honorary suffragette. And I think it's <laughs> She fought very hard for the Equal Rights Act um, and alongside the Equal Rights Act, and so with that came ensuring that every female citizen in the United States could vote. And so in her own way, she was a suffragette. It just wasn't the leading thing she did. Right. Which is fine. She did a lot of amazing leading things, and so I'm not mad about it. <laughs> she just wasn't a suffragette in the same it. way. I'm not mad about it. I think it's great. She a suffragette in the same way that we think of Anthony or Truth or the other suffragettes we've discussed. But she still did fight for women's right to vote and fight for women to have a place in a power structure where they didn't have great representation. So I consider that to be a suffragette. Even if you aren't directly fighting for, give us the right to vote, you're fighting for, give us the right to represent ourselves. Yeah, it's kind of the next step that comes after. You get the right to vote, and then you have the right to be, re you have the right to be represented by someone who holds your opinions and your views, and that represents you. And she was kind of that next step, moving beyond simply having the right to vote and continuing the vote, as I had mentioned, within that male hierarchy. She started to break down those barriers that had existed that had stopped people from advancing. Um, you know, there's the glass ceiling, there's also the glass wall as well, where you can't move forward within an institution and you can't move up within a political institution glass ceiling. How high can you get without being stopped because of your gender or your, um, the color of your skin or your religion or your sexual orientation or any of those other things that have been used to prevent people from advancing within those power hierarchies and she started to break down a number of those barriers and that's extremely important for any group for any individual who wants to be heard those barriers have to be torn down brick by brick before those voices will be heard because it's extremely difficult to have your voice heard if there is an act if there if you are unable to have people who are willing to listen to you in power absolutely and just to keep going back to that example we keep using about having a seat at the table, it's like basically the exact same thing Dree said, but like you have to get in the house before you can sit at the table. You have to be allowed what? Shirley Chisholm has a great quote on that. Let me find it. Oh, really? Yes. Hold on. I, I, I don't want to paraphrase. I want to get it right. It's a very good, very good quote. Yeah, because we continue to have this conversation every week about having a seat at the table and not just sitting at the table, but being heard at the table. Here's our quote. If they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. That's wow. a good quote. It is a good quote. And it's I love that cool. quote. And I've always been very critical of receiving a seat at the table because I don't think it's their table to give away. That's like, true. again, equality is a pie. You don't own the table. You don't own, you're not giving me a right. I have a right. I've just always had an issue with the idea of being given a seat at the table because it's not your table. I wouldn't walk into Tree's house and then say, oh, Caitlin, here's a seat at the table. Like, that's not how life works. Right. And that's what sure, I'm pretty sure that's what that quote means. I mean, I can't get into her mind, but yeah. bring a folding chair. She says, screw their system. I'm going to come and I'm going to sit here and I'm going to have my voice heard. All, all their opinions be damned. I don't care. I want to be heard. I deserve to be heard. I have a right to be heard. And that's exactly what she's saying. She was 
brave enough, and a lot of people at that point in time were fearful of the repercussions that they would have for sticking up for themselves, um, especially in areas like the segregated South. There was a long period of time where they, there weren't any people of color representing any district from the South because people were scared to have their voice heard. And as a woman of color, though she was from Brooklyn, Malcolm X even said it, you don't have to, if you want to look for segregation, you don't have to go any further than New York City. New York City was one of the most, and is one of the most segregated cities in the United States. And there was hostility, despite it being a northern city, despite it being this, you know, utopia of progression and all that stuff. It's not. People are just as racist there as they are in Salma, Alabama, especially during this period of time. And she fought against that system in which people were scared to stand up for themselves. All very true things. <laughs> I think the truth and nothing but the truth. Just... God. Yeah. <laughs> so with all of that in mind, are we ready to start talking about our discussion questions for today? Sure, I didn't even look at all of them yet. <laughs> that, this means it'll be like candid, candid conversations. So first discussion question, what is the relationship between those with power and those without power? Why is it important for individuals from disadvantaged groups to be represented in the halls of power? Which Tree already touched upon pretty greatly, which is, you know, you have to have those voices to be able to understand what how they're being affected. You, me as a white person, cannot look, I can recognize and sympathize with um, the issues of other, um, like a disabled person or a person of color or someone who is homosexual or someone who's trans, but I can't understand it to a deepest level. And we've talked about this in other episodes. Like, I personally feel that the best person to advocate for that kind of an issue is a person who is personally affected by it because they understand more than anyone else what the stakes are and they understand the importance of it. I can sympathize and I can still be a great ally to any of those organizations, but it's so important to have that person there in that conversation to express how it really is for somebody who understands it's best. And for people that come after them, it's important to have people in those positions because it shows that they are welcome into the conversation. That's extremely true. And it should also be noted that groups in power will at times try to appease the groups that aren't will do anything to keep those groups happy so that they can remain in power. And by getting people who are different from those people who are already in power into power, it breaks that appeasement so that there can be actual progression rather than just the illusion of progression. You only need 50% of the vote to win. You just need to keep 50% or 50.01% 50 of the vote. 50. Yeah, 50, okay, 51% for math's sake, we'll just, um, we'll keep it simple. 51% of the vote to win, and if you keep that 51% of the vote to win, why do you care about the other 49%? And that's how our representative system kind of works, where we ignore, or representatives ignore the groups that aren't in power, because that does not affect their ability to win, their job security does not affect their constituency at all. And it wasn't until, it's more of a recent thing where we're actually more willing to listen to people who make up a wide variety of individuals rather than just the white male power hierarchy and maybe a few women or people of color who might be interested in your message. You just want to help them out a little bit so you can get them to vote for you. Right. 
it doesn't address the actual underlying think, issues. It addresses um, cosmetic things, essentially. And I think a lot like Caitlin said, you know, you need someone like you to represent you who understands, you know, the struggles you face and the hardships you endure. And it's important to give those people a voice. While it's important to be an ally, sometimes allies have a way of speaking over those who have actually endured the struggles. So that isn't helpful. And I think that that actually helps continue the power structure through time because it's still, you know, if I am a white straight woman speaking on behalf of the LGBTQ community, I'm still considered a person with power over them. And so it's still continuing this power structure. Even though I don't have the same level of power as a straight white man, I still hold power over them. So it's important to give them a space to represent their communities. I would not expect someone from Harrisburg to represent my town. They wouldn't know where my town is. They doesn't. They wouldn't know who lives here. But, they, but similarly, I wouldn't I know where expect. It is. But but also, <laughs> even if they know where it is and they've done research on it and they sympathize with you, they do not have your experience. You know, just because they can be a good ally to where you live and know a lot about it. And they might talk to people that are from there and feel that as though they, they might as well have lived there. That doesn't change the fact that they didn't. True. And in a representative democracy, yes. um, Caitlin and I were talking about groupthink before this call. And in a representative democracy, if you don't have a grouping of people that has a diversity of experience, a diversity of understanding, you get into that rut of groupthink where you're like, yes, my idea is good and everyone will be happy with it, no matter what outside influences there might be. I know it is good because all these people who are like me, who have lived the same life as me, think it is good. Absolutely. Our representative democracy is not the most perfect system. You know, a direct democracy where everyone's voice is heard and equally valued, you know, that makes sense in some situations, but in a country the size of the United States, that's not all to be practical. Um, which is where we run into those issues where we need a diversity of leadership because a diversity of leadership indicates a diversity of, of experience. That is why each state has two senators so that each state has their somewhat experiences. You know, South Dakota is different than Texas. So those two senators will have a diversity of experience amongst themselves and amongst the other um, hundred senators. And same thing with the House of Representatives. There may be more representatives from California than there are from, let's go with, did I say South Dakota last time? Let's go with North Dakota this time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but they're still represented within that group within the representative democracy, though their experiences are different geographically, just easier to break it down that way. But the same thing can be said along gender, race, religious lines, um, sexual preference, all along those lines of economic structure um, and having those having that diversity experience leads to better governance because you have a better understanding someone who does not who has not lived your experience can still understand your experience if they listen to you and actually take into account what you are saying but it's far more likely that what you need done will be done by someone who has had that same experience. And in the voting structure, if there is at least one person who has had that experience voting, they can work with the other people who are voting, you know, as a Congress should 
not that it always does as a Congress should. Um, it should listen, they should listen to each other and build off of those different ideas from the different constituencies that they represent. Yeah, government. And <laughs> just to like, to go back to that first part of the question, just so I make sure we like hit it well, what is the relationship between those with power and those without power? Honestly, I think the relationship is those who have the power can determine how they share the power. So like, if you only have people in power who are like each other, it's very rare for them to go outside of their power group because they know there's a risk, you know, there's a risk for them to have someone who has different differences of opinion or we have that issue where, you know, people think that if they give power, quote unquote power to say women, for example, that they are losing power somehow instead of just sharing power. So I think the influence between people with power and people without power is that the people with power have a lot of say over the power that other people have, at least in decision making. Like obviously they have power, different types of power. There are different types of power, but like power, for example, in political decision making, if you're the ones with the power, you can decide how much you want to include people below you or not. I don't want to say below you. That's not nice. But like people that aren't being given an opportunity to have the power. So question two is, what are the powers of a symbol? Some called Shirley's campaign symbolic. If it was in fact symbolic, what made it an important symbol? I mean, we kind of talked about this earlier that it symbolized the breaking down of those barriers. And as Shirley did not want it to just simply be a symbol, she was running. She was quoted many times saying, I am running to win. I am not just a symbol. And it was shown that by her campaign that as a woman, as a person of color, you don't just have to run as a symbol. You can run on ideals that you believe in, that you believe will be good for our country moving forward. Um, I feel as though her campaign probably paved the way for someone like Jesse Jackson to run for president. As Jesse Jackson ran in 1984 and 1988, unsuccessfully gained the Democratic, um, did not gain the Democratic uh, nomination either time, but came very close, especially in 1988. Um, but he fought for ideals that he believed in. And we see that now, rather than just fighting for, I want to maintain the status quo, we have people saying, I want to break that status quo because I can and I am empowered as a citizen of the United States to fight for what I believe in, to fight for what my community needs, to fight for what our country needs. And that is exactly what she did. And that what makes her symbol so powerful that she is someone who stood up for what she believes in even when the odds were against her and the majority of the country was against her at that point in time. She was unafraid to stand up, to take power, to say this is what needs to be done and this is the direction that we need to move in. I was going to touch more on the first part, the power of a symbol. I think the symbol, a symbol, is something that is meant to unify a group. So regardless of what it is, um, if it's a logo from a band or, you know, a popular tattoo choice, whatever it is, the whole point of the symbol is to sort of represent a community. Yeah. Black Lives Matter is a symbol. It is done to represent a movement. It has a very unifying power. And so to call someone's campaign symbolic is to imply that this campaign worked to unify a group, regardless of 
what the unifying reason is, if it's music, if it's a cool design choice, if it's I'm fighting for the rights of domestic workers, and so this town that is full of domestic workers is unifying around me. A symbol is designed to unify a group of people, and it's very prestigious to be told you're doing something symbolic because you're being told you're unifying this group of people in a way that has not been done before. And I think it's an interesting idea I just had about her life being a symbol kind of towards feminism and, you know, not just being a symbol of, I think she's a symbol of change, especially for women and especially for women of color. So not only does she recognize, is not only is she a symbolic, not only is she a symbol for the political change she had, but like a social change too. That it's not just a woman being able to do these things, but it's also showing that you don't have to stick to this norm of, especially at that time, like women still being the caregivers, the homemakers, the you know, they were able to speak out more. Did that make any sense? I feel like I just had five different things going on in my head that just kind of just meshed together. No, that made sense. And that was kind of um, representative of the second wave of feminism. People yes. who had traditionally been homemakers being empowered to stand up to take positions in the workforce that had otherwise been off limits to them, despite the fact that they had had work experience from World War II when they worked in the factories and everyone enjoyed being outside of the home. But there was a sudden reversal of that in the 1940s and 50s, which led to the feeling that women had once again been restricted. And she represented to breaking out of that restriction, um, very representative of the other people that we see during the uh, second wave of feminism. Uh, Bella Abzug, another congresswoman from New York, um, who fought for a lot of the same positions that Shirley fought for. Uh, they helped propel the narrative forward to break free of that, of the understanding of uh, how a woman was supposed to be um, from the male hierarchy perspective. Uh, what was Bella Abzug? Why did you say that? That was what I was trying to say. You're saying it how I was wanting to say it. It wasn't coming out that way. You said it very well. <laughs> uh, what was the... Um, Bella Abzug had a good slogan, too, for her presidential or for her congressional campaign. What was it? Uh, let's take a woman to the House, but the House of Representatives. It was uh, kind of a symbol of breaking down, once again, another symbol of breaking down the traditional, the traditional view of how women should be in the House, um, in a congressional standpoint. I don't know. That's nerdy that I know that, but Mrs. America, you learn things. They talk about that at one point, but anyway. <laughs> and finally... How could someone reconcile with an individual such as George Wallens? Wallace. Well, there's an N. Why is there an N? Does he have an N in his name normally? No, um, that just means autocorrect. It didn't do anything about my misspelling. <laughs> How could someone reconcile with an individual such as George Wallace who fought for racial segregation for his entire time in office? She's just yeah. him. I think it just comes down to the fact that she was so much more open than he was. And I mean, it comes from, I think, a place of being seen as other. Are you really going to see others as other? Yeah, and I think that's something that we really struggle with in our current political climate, where politicians tend to reduce each other to the straw man version of them, of their, reduce their enemies to the, the straw man version of themselves. Whereas it's just constant attacks and the 
understanding of the humanity of other people has kind of entirely been lost. But there were people who, like Shirley Chisholm, were competing against someone who stood for everything that she was against, and that she was able to see him as a person shows how someone is able to work past their, their differences, no matter how great the chasm is that separates them. They're able to work, she was someone who was able to work past that and reconcile, not necessarily reconcile, but say, I still see you as a human being, though you don't see me as a human being. Because I highly doubt in 1972 that George Wallace saw Shirley Chisholm as someone even close to being as equal to him as a person of color. Because that's something that he did not believe at that particular point in time of his life. But she was able to help break down those walls. And that's part of her power and part of that symbol that she was willing to break down every wall, even the wall that existed within someone else's mind, that she was able to go to him and say, look at me as a person because I look at you as a person as well. And we kind of saw their relationship change when he helped her pass bills in Congress by getting segregationist senators to vote with her which otherwise wouldn't have happened because they were able to break down those barriers that had separated them for the entirety of their lives. Yeah. I wrote that question. I just thought it was interesting. <laughs> it's definitely interesting that she saw him as a colleague, not just as someone who fought against her as an enemy. She, really had the power to recognize we're fighting for different things, but we're essentially fighting a similar fight in that we're fighting to represent our beliefs. Unfortunately, he had garbage beliefs. He did have garbage beliefs. <laughs> he had great beliefs and his were kind of garbage, but she had the ability to recognize that he is my colleague. He fights for the same, same concept I fight for, not for the same things, but I mean, unfortunately, he just wasn't a great person for the first part of his life. For a majority of his life. Um, there for a majority. Actually, there was actually a very interesting push at the, that year's Democratic Convention to get Shirley and George Wallace onto a joint ticket for the presidency. There, that was actually a push that went on. Just think about that. That's extremely interesting. <laughs> It is, but I see the appeal of it because the people who hate George Wallace would likely appreciate um, Shirley Chisholm, and the people who hated Shirley Chisholm would likely appreciate George George Wallace. Wallace. Yeah, it was very. The seventies were a weird time, man. They're 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 weird, but <laughs> to say the least. Something this question was making me think about: What would our world be like if more people acted like that? Where you. Are willing to see people as Americans instead of labels. Like if we were more like third wave feminists, where we stopped categorizing people by race. Not not saying you're not supposed to see race. You know, you are supposed to see, recognize, appreciate. Or same thing with gender, sexuality, everything else. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying if we stopped focusing so much on labels and started to focus more on civility and humility and humanity, you know, being more willing to be hospitable towards each other, even. I mean, the vision Shirley Chisholm had in 1972 for what our country could be, what our society could be, was something 
greater than what it is today, where people were actually able to see past their differences and work together regardless of their situation. And that was a, it's a very positive outlook on society as a whole, that we are able to come together to fight for change in the right direction that represents everyone, that we are all working for each other to ensure that the world moves in the right direction. Um, the world would be a much different place if we all lived like Shirley Chisholm. And with that in mind, um, we have a couple of announcements before we end today's podcast. Um, firstly, a teacher that I used to have in high school reached out to me and asked if I would promote on this podcast um, the online absentee application that students and people can access. So that way we are ensuring that um, all people have access to vote and to use their voices, which I think Shirley Chisholm would be very um very into us promoting so if you guys want to go to pa voter services.pa.gov slash online absentee application you will be able to access that if you need an online absentee ballot um who are we talking about next week i don't know i'm not in charge so, so next week is another audience choice so on your two choices this week are francis ellen watkins harper and Eleanor Roosevelt. Eleanor Roosevelt is Caitlin's favorite, and she's hoping she will win this time. I'm she was in the running last time. No, 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 no. I'm not hoping. I'm not hoping for anything. I'm just saying she's like the coolest political figure ever. But I'm not influencing anything. But yes, please vote how you feel. I'm going to read a short description. Um, they will also be available on our social media. You're not just picking random names. So Frances Ellen Watkins Harper wrote her first book of poetry at age 20. She was the first African-American woman to publish a short story shortly after that. She later became the first female instructor at Union Seminary. In 1866, we've been talking about the 1900s, so I wanted to make sure I got that right. She spoke at the National Women's Rights Convention in New York, which we've referenced many times. Um, this, the 19th is actually when it was held. It was held over a weekend. And so that weekend started on the 19th of July. So we are quickly approaching that anniversary. Um, she, her famous speech entitled, We Are All Bound Up Together, urged the fellow attendees of this convention to include African-American women in their fight for suffrage, which, as we've mentioned many times, wasn't always the case for the early suffrage movements. Um, so Frances Ellen Watkins Harper really championed that we're all women and we're all fighting for the same ideals. We should all be included. And Eleanor Roosevelt was a first lady from 1933 to 1945, um, often thought to have stepped into the role of presidency when her husband fell ill and sort of led in his place, um, which, Caitlin, you mention all the time, this idea of behind every good man's a stronger woman. Um, she was part of a woman-owned furniture cooperative in a time where women weren't always given the best career opportunities. She promoted women's political engagement, playing a leadership role in several organizations, including the League of Voters and the Women's 
trade union league. So the League of Women Voters were fighting for suffrage then, and they're still fighting for your right to vote now. You can go to Vote411 to access all kinds of voter engagement resources, online registrations where they're applicable, online absentee applications. Um, so that website or the website Caitlin had mentioned, both will be linked in the video descriptions. She also was the head of the Women's Division of the Democratic National Committee. So those will be your choices that will have already happened by the time you hear this podcast. And so next week, you will be learning about either Frances Ellen Watkins Harper or Eleanor Roosevelt. And I'm not going to say one for one or the other. I'm just saying if we don't talk about Eleanor Roosevelt, you should really see like stuff about her as a pop culture icon because she was a very influential as a cultural figure as well. If we don't talk about Eleanor Roosevelt this season, we will be talking about her in future seasons. She is very influential in women's movement and such. So don't vote just because you're like, oh, now we have to hear about Eleanor Roosevelt. You'll hear about her regardless. It just, whether it will be next week or in the future. I'm going to get my opportunity. Some hell or high water. <laughs> In hell or high water. Tree, I want to express for me and Taylor and our listeners, thank you for coming on the show. It was very fun to film with you. Sure. Hopefully I didn't mess anything up. So, you know, yeah, I'm happy to be here anytime. All right. Well, they were great. It was great. Yeah. Thanks, guys. It was a lot of fun. It was great being here at my house where I am. <laughs> where we all are. Love the coronavirus. All oh, right. yeah, it's corona time. We will see everybody next week, and we hope you have a great rest of your week. This has been Wednesday's Women, sponsored by the Clarion University CU Engaged Coalition. The thoughts and ideas presented in this podcast are meant to be for entertainment purposes first and foremost, and we do not claim to be experts in any field. As always, thanks for listening, and make sure you go out and register to vote.